Welcome to the What's Your Ceiling podcast. We're your hosts, Monty Wyatt and Paul Szczynski. Wherever you are in life, there is a higher ceiling. This podcast is how you become aware of it and how to take action to push through it. I'm Monty Wyatt, best-selling author of Pulling Profits Out of a Hat and CEO of Adding Zero's Executive Development. I grew up on a family farm in Iowa and have gone from sowing corn to sowing seeds of success throughout the world, leading, managing, and training teams. With me is Paul Szczynski, entrepreneur and investor who also grew up on a family farm here in Iowa. We believe every organization and person can be intentional in how they lead, influence, and manage their lives and businesses. What's Your Ceiling is for professionals, managers, executives, entrepreneurs, and business owners who want to achieve more in their health, family, and business by breaking through their ceiling. Every episode will give you real-world, easy-to-implement solutions so that you can be more aware and take action to reach new heights. It's time to discover your ceiling. Welcome to our show. Looking forward to another great conversation on what's your ceiling. You know, we always like to start off with some great, insightful ways to think. And today I want to talk about a concept called above and beyond. Paul, when you hear me say the words above and beyond, what comes to mind for you? Well, first thing for me, I look at someone that's almost like a superstar because you go up beyond where you're at, takes effort, takes energy. And I think that's pretty exciting. I like it and fits perfect for our today's event. You know, when I think of above and beyond, there's a number of ways to look at it. One, it's do things above and beyond. Let's do more than what's expected. But it's also can be, how do we be more than what's expected? There's a difference between doing and being. And I think above and beyond in a certain number of senses, I need to be something better than I was yesterday. I need to go above and beyond what I was yesterday. I need to go above and beyond what's asked of me so I can do deliver more things. And our topic and our guest today, Dr. Deming, the title of his book is Above and Beyond Cancer. And so we're going to learn a little bit about that. But Dr. Deming, I'd love for you just to describe that concept in general, if you would. Yeah, well, thank you. Thanks for having me on. And you're right. Above and beyond is um, if you only do what you know you can do, you'll never achieve your potential. It's only by reaching above and beyond what you know you can do with certainty that you have any possibility of obtaining what you can truly obtain in life. And so that's the doing, but you're right. It's all also about in order to do something above and beyond what you know for certainty that you can do, you have to have the mindset. Absolutely. To be willing to fail, that not achieving your goal is not the same, you know, I use the word failure, but it's really continuous quality improvement, if you will, a mindset that says the only way I can get better is by doing something different, by exceeding my own expectations. So all of that's wrapped up into the above it. and beyond. I love it. I appreciate you sharing that. And with that, before we go any farther, Paul, if you would introduce our guest that we have with us today. Well, our guest today, I am honored and pleasure to have him here, Dr. Richard Deming. He's a medical director of Mercy One Cancer Center in Des Moines, Iowa. He wrote the book Above and Beyond Cancer, which is a fantastic book. We have it here today, so we'll find ways if you want to buy it. We'll figure that out. But Dr. Deming, if you drive down 235 downtown Des Moines, Iowa, and you look up on the side of the hospital, it's got Dr. Deming Cancer Center, which is amazing. I can say... He's a gentleman that graduated, I believe, from Creighton University. South Dakota State. South Dakota State. Go Jackrabbits. That's Jack an Rabbits. undergrad in, in okay. Creighton Medical School. Go Blue Jays. And what's amazing, on both colleges, you were number one. And I think the IQ definitely went up in the room when he walked in the room. Would you agree, Monty? <laughs> It couldn't have gotten any lower, I can tell you that. So, <laughs> No. <laughs> but... Out of 1,023 students, and you're number one, I'd say that's pretty impressive. I don't care what anybody says. Absolutely. But he's been a big part of a lot of people's lives in the Des Moines area and all over the United States. He's probably, I consider, probably the, one of the top cancer doctors in the Midwest. We're going to talk a little bit about that today, talk a little bit about how he's grown over the years. But we'll have more information on Dr. Deming, and I think we'll probably have it on our website. Yep. So we'll get into that. But Dr. Deming, kind of talk to you a little about how you got into being a medical doctor and where you came from, because I do also believe you're a ranger. 
Uh, a Navy Ranger. Well, I was a Navy doctor, yeah, so that was, that's part of my journey. So I grew up in little towns in South Dakota, so about 500 population, and the first in my family to go to college. I remember clearly Madison High School, so by the time I was in high school, we were living in a huge city of 5,000 people, you know, bowling alley, <laughs> movie theater, swimming pool, and I remember going to the counselor, and he said, well, where are you going to go to college, state or you? And so that was kind of the biggest horizons that were presented to me growing up in the 50s and the 60s. And I said, well, I guess I'll go to state. And um, I certainly don't regret it. I had a great education at South Dakota State. I was really good at math and science, really good at taking tests and love to take tests where you can, there's a right answer and you can prove that you have the right answer and, you know, you can get a hundred percent. I have talents in the humanities, but I hated essay tests where you couldn't actually argue what's right and wrong in a test. So I started college with a chemistry major in South Dakota in high school. There's one chemistry class and I took that one chemistry class, got an A, so it was probably the hardest class I had in high school, so I go, okay, well, I'll be a chemistry major in college. So I'm a chemistry major, and then I take a microbiology class the first semester. I go, well, this is kind of fun. I'll be a double major, chemistry and microbiology. And since I've never gone to school without taking a math class, go, well, I have to take math every semester because going to school includes math. So then by the time I'm taking math, I'm a math minor, and I've got all of this science, 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 which comes easy. And I should say what comes easy is I'm really good at taking tests. And so by the time I'm a junior in college, my advisor's going, well, where are you going to go for your PhD? And it's like, I have no idea what a PhD does. I mean, other than teach college. And so the concept of going and getting a PhD in a science, I just didn't think I had the scientific creativity. And although I never knew a doctor, you know, I'd seen Marcus Welby on TV and kind of knew what a doctor did, I actually thought that going to medical school was kind of like going to a graduate program where you definitely know there's a job at the end and knew what you were going to do. So that's one of the stories I tell as to how I went into medicine, was to use my science and math and my ability to take tests to go into a scientific field that had a distinct job as I came out of it. I now know that there's another version of how I became a doctor, and when I was a junior in high school, my mom was diagnosed with incurable lung cancer. And she died when I was a second-year medical student. And I don't think I ever overtly told myself, Mom died of cancer, you will become a cancer doctor. But when I look back on the path that my life has taken, I know that her hand has been gently on my back, sort of leading me to where I am. And I know now when I see patients that were born about the year my mom was born, my mom died at 52, she had cancer at a time where there was still a stigma and almost an embarrassment to have cancer. You didn't talk about it. You didn't talk, you certainly didn't talk about death and dying. You didn't talk about healing. You didn't talk about meaning and purpose. So all of those have become important to me. I now know that my skill and success at being a doctor is more related to my knowledge of humanity and poetry and literature does all of the math and science that I took for years and years and years. Not to diminish the importance of the hard science, but when you're in a clinical practice of a physician taking care of a patient, I mean, it's a human being taking care of another human being, and that is the essence of humanity. So that's kind of a lengthy answer to how I became a doctor. In the process, one of the things that I do want to focus on, because it also changed my life, and you never know when you come to a fork in the road. You're not even sure you're at a fork in the road, but you go down a certain path. So I graduated from South Dakota State, and then I went to Creighton Medical School. I grew up in a small town with a loving family, not a lot of money, but when you're in a town of 500 people growing up, 
the difference between the richest person in town and the poorest person in town is pretty minuscule. And so the first town up through first grade was Armour, South Dakota, and then Avon, South Dakota. Just wonderful place to grow up in the 50s and the 60s. You know, by the time we did get TV, you had one channel and then maybe at most three, but you didn't know what you didn't have. Now, it's, oh my gosh, kids have in their pocket the vision of every possible thing that's out there, and it makes it more difficult to be satisfied with what you have. Well, one of the things I was going to say is when I started medical school, the idea, I had scholarships that paid for all of my college, but again, I was going to South Dakota State, a state school, so it wasn't that expensive, but I had scholarships, so I had no debt. The idea that I was going to go in debt for medical school was kind of scary, Mm -hmm. so I applied for and received a Navy scholarship. Now, I graduated from high school in 1972. We were still, you know, at the end of the Vietnam War. I was a bleeding heart liberal, long-haired hippie, (laughs) anti-war, and that was the thing to be. So I didn't go into the Navy thinking, I am going to serve my country, and this is about patriotism. I went in as a scholarship. I will tell you that my life and my outlook changed because of my Navy experience. So I graduated from medical school at Creighton University in Omaha, Nebraska. Did my internship in San Diego, California, at the Naval Hospital. And then one of the first things, that, when I look back on how my life changed, I, I reached above and beyond. I decided, since I was in the Navy, I should do something and have an experience that I wouldn't have had had I not been a Navy doctor. So in the Navy, there are two military medical specialties. You can go into flight surgery, which is you learn about aviation, you get a little bit of pilot training as a doctor, and you take care of Navy pilots. The other military medical specialty is undersea medicine. So you get submarine training, and you actually become a fully trained Navy scuba diver. Now, I grew up in South Dakota, had never been scuba diving. I signed up for undersea medicine, knowing that I was going to get the full Navy scuba training, never having scuba dived in my life. So I, <laughs> undersea medicine training was time in Connecticut with submarines and then at the experimental dive unit in Panama City, Florida, where I became a certified Navy scuba diver and also got training in deep sea diving, the surface supplied big mm-hmm. copper helmet rig. And then I was stationed in Hawaii for two years, taking care of parachute jumping, scuba diving, bomb disposal, frogmen. So that was called EOD, or Explosive Ordnance Disposal. But Grant, this was peacetime, 1982 to 84, in Hawaii, at age 29, (laughs) taking care of uber-fit athletes. Didn't enjoy it at all, did you? It was horrible. (laughs) But it didn't feel like being a real doctor. And also, you know, in the back of my mind was this desire to have, maybe make more of an impact on people who really were in need. Not that uber-fit athletes don't need, you know, good preventive medicine and good care, but I think this is where, you know, my mom's hand on my back sort of led me into the field of oncology. So I did my residency in radiation oncology at the University of California, San Francisco. I was still active duty Navy, but in a civilian training program. And then uh, when I finished my training program, I still owed two years of obligated service to Uncle Sam on the basis of my scholarship and all the training that they had paid for. So my last two years was at the National Cancer Institute and Bethesda Naval Hospital in Bethesda, Maryland, just outside of D.C. And then in 1989, I came to Des Moines, Iowa, and I've been here ever since. Yeah, what a great place to live. Yeah, it is. I had, you know, in the Navy, every two years I had moved, so it was a big... I had to finally tell myself, as because there were opportunities everywhere, and at that point I'd lived on both coasts in Hawaii and knew that I could be happy anywhere. And mm-hmm. I, find, I remember distinctly saying, okay, you're just, you're not making a decision for the rest of your life here. You just make a decision for where you're going to go the next two years and just see how it works out. As it turned out, I did make a decision for, for, for what turned out to be the rest of my professional life. Oh, that's great. Now, real quick here, 
when you were water diving, scuba were diving, scuba diving, that's uh-huh, okay. Yeah, deep scuba sea diving. diving scuba exactly. Diving. What's a doctor doing when he's yeah. deep sea diving? Yeah. I guess. So you don't actually, you're not actually doctoring when you're diving. So uh, getting the diving training was the perk that got doctors to sign up to go into undersea medicine. But if the group that you're taking care of, your divers, are doing an exceptional exposure dive that needs a doctor and a recompression chamber on site, you are not diving. You are on the surface of the ship with the recompression chamber. So the getting to dive was just the perk. But if they're doing a dive, so I was with um, Explosive Ordnance Disposal. They come back to Hawaii to the headquarters once a year to get recertification. And those recertification dives are basically spearfishing underwater (laughs) and getting enough hours in that you call it a recertification dive. But because it's not that deep, they can take the doctor along on the dive. And so... And you uh, couldn't say no. And you couldn't say no. No, not at all. But if they are doing a type of dive that is deep enough or using a mixed helium-oxygen mixture where there is some risk, then as the doctor, you're not diving. You're with the recompression chamber at the surface okay. of the ship. I'm glad you clarified that. I, was, I saw it on here and I'm like, what's Yeah, can you just see a, you know, a stethoscope on and a mask and got a surgical yeah. tool? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I hope that clarified it. Now, so you come to Des Moines and radiology is kind of where you went. I yeah, mean, radiation you're, you're, oncology. Radiation. So yeah, in, in the world of cancer, you know, there are in general three ways of treating cancer. Surgery chemotherapy, which is medical oncology, and radiation oncology. So treating cancer with radiation is over 100 years old, the history of that. So it's one of the three ways of treating cancer. And when I came to Des Moines, obviously I came here for a position. Mercy, where I'm at now, was just starting its cancer program. So it was the opportunity. In some ways, it was coming back to the Midwest, because as I mentioned, I grew up in South Dakota, went to medical school in Nebraska, and although I had never lived in Iowa, it's very similar to where I grew up. And the previous 10 years, I'd been on both coasts in Hawaii, so it felt like I was returning to my roots. And it was also an opportunity to be part of a cancer center that was just developing so I could, you know, help influence its culture and what it was going to be. But it was a job. I mean, in my mind, as I'm coming here, I'm thinking, okay. And again, I said, I'm not sure if I'm going to get, if I'm going to stay or not. So I, for the first 10 years, I did not put down any roots. Having lived on both coasts, having friends all over the place, like every weekend I wasn't on call, I was flying off someplace to get together with people I knew and not establishing friends. Mm -hmm. But during that period of time, and you know, I would have been maybe in my 30s still, I really did start to contemplate what brings joy to one's life, which I think is an essential homework assignment for anyone. We all know people who want to live forever but don't have a clue what they could do today to bring joy to their life or to someone else's life. So what brings joy? And And when I say what brings joy, clearly I'm talking about this deep-seated joy that, you know, Aristotle refers to as eudynomia. It's not the hedonistic finding pleasure. I mean, there's nothing wrong with a beer on the beach, but, you know, you're not going to get deep-seated joy from lots of that. So what does bring joy to your life? And as I thought more about it, I knew for me it was engaging in service to others. I knew, but it also included pushing myself physically, engaging in vigorous physical activity, being outdoors in nature, and ultimately realizing social connections. And at the point that I started thinking about what brings joy to my life, I started including more of those activities in my own life. And then I also started sharing with my patients, because when you're a cancer doctor, You're not just a scientist, you're a bit of a philosopher and a minister and a cheerleader and, you know, a therapist. So 
as you start helping individuals by sharing, you know, what brings joy to your life? And if they don't have an answer to that, you know, it's not like I'm going to tell them, but maybe let me share with you what could bring joy to your life. Here's what brings joy to my life. Um, And as I started sharing more and more, not just my expertise as to how to treat their cancer cells, but how to help them have the best life possible, regardless of whether whether their cancer is curable or whether their cancer is treatable, but not curable, it's you, you, the good doctor doesn't just treat the cancer cells, you take care of the whole patient. At the point that I broke down the wall of, no, this is just a job, and my job is to kill this person's cancer cells, to no, this isn't a career in medicine, this is a ministry of healing, and accepted that I had um, healing powers beyond focusing a radiation beam on a tumor. And in many ways, that healing power that we all have is the power that we have by being present and establishing, trusting, caring, authentic relationships by being present when you need to be, by being available, by being honest and open, but also finding you know, the opportunity for hope in every encounter. Wow, that's powerful. That is really powerful. You know, Monty, I think, you know, and you probably see this, and this is really cool stuff. And I think I have a hard time always finding joy. And I'm a type A personality because I feel that I got to achieve and I got to work. But slowing down and you talking about it is really makes me think. What about you, Monty? I mean, well, what, I, what I think you're exactly right. You know, you talk about what brought you joy was the languaging of serving others and pushing yourself and that social connection. And you've brought that into your daily activity. And that's what you do. And I think that's what you really have to create is people talk today about balance of work and business and personal life and all that. It's you need to combine it when you're absolutely passionate about something. Well, the best is when you can do it you know, you can have it both. You don't have Absolutely. to separate. And and again, we're talking about this deep-seated joy that includes suffering. You know, a joy does not come with absence of suffering. So you're not going to climb a mountain and get to the top and celebrate without suffering along the way. You don't complete Ironman without suffering. So... And maybe make the distinction, some people would make a distinction between pain and suffering. So there's going to be bumps, there's going to be difficulty, but achieving something, understanding that the difficulty comes with it, and that difficulty can be um, sorrow and grief. You don't get to be age 30, 40, 50 without having lost someone in your life. And putting in perspective that you know, we are mortal, we will die. How do we uh, accept our own death? And how do we grieve, accept suffering, accept pain? You know, you try to avoid it when possible. I'm not saying you intentionally, but sometimes you do. I mean, if you sign up for an Ironman, you are foolish to think you're going to get through that without some pain. Now, you've done Iron Man. Have you done it? Yes. And not and only that, haven't you taken people up mountains? Yes. So uh, part of what I do now is, you know, when I, when I accepted that my role as a doctor, a cancer doctor, wasn't just to kill cancer cells, but to help uh, bring healing to my patients and helping them find joy, as we started sharing philosophically and then sharing this concept of, you know, engaging in physical activity is good for your health, but it's good also for finding joy, then started creating programs for patients to engage in physical activity, be out in nature, hiking, walking, cycling, And also, once a year, I take a group of cancer survivors on a mind-body-spirit journey 
into the mountains. So we've gone to Everest Base Camp and the summit of Kilimanjaro and up and over the Andes to Machu Picchu and into Tibet to Mount Kailash. And again, you do not, none of those trips are without pain and suffering. So I kind of with tongue in cheek say that if you sign up for one of my trips, triple money back guarantee, you will have suffering. (laughs) And if you, nothing wrong essentially with just having a beach vacation, but Boy, there's so much joy that comes from coming together as a group and engaging in a challenge. You know, people talk about post-traumatic stress, how a difficult situation can make you unable to just even deal with normal situations. I think a more common phenomenon is post-traumatic growth, where we go through a difficult time, but with all the support we need, we come through that difficult time with a better sense of the strength that we have within us. That strength is always there, but unless we reach above and beyond, We don't even know what we're capable of. And the more times that you take on a challenge with support and come through it successfully, the more you understand your own strength. And and that's what we call resilience, is this understanding that I have been through difficulty before and with help of others have gotten through it. I'm not positive I can climb this mountain, but I know that trying to will provide great you know, that's fantastic. I think you find, we, we talked on a podcast earlier about taking ownership. And uh, you probably see all types of people and people that don't make it because they don't become resilient. They, they, it, I think a lot of it's attitude, the chemistry of people you, you're around and building off that. But to really talk about joy the way you do, I don't know anybody that I know that talk like that. But it's such a key thing. It is. It is. And it's not, I mean, attitude's important, but I do want to say that good people who have the right attitude still die of cancer. So I'm not, and absolutely, I'm not saying that if you have the right attitude, that's all you need to survive cancer. You can do everything right, have the best team in the world, have the best attitude, and you can still die of cancer. So it's not that you just have to will yourself through every difficult situation, but you have to do, you have to be willing to accept that there are difficulties, there are bumps in the road of life, and essentially it's how does a bump in the road of life, and it can be a cancer diagnosis, it can be bankruptcy, it can be a relationship problem, how does a bump in the road of life, how can you use that as a springboard rather than a barrier? If you stop at every bump you know, that's the post-traumatic stress. But how do you use this bump, you know, like a gymnastic vaulting horse where you use this obstacle to actually engage your own strength and propel yourself further? And the more times you jump over that bump, the less intimidating the next bump is. But you can have absolutely the right mindset, the right set of of physicians, the right team, and you still can die of cancer. So it's uh, one of the tragedies is that we've made a lot of progress, but we're still dealing with 600,000 Americans who will die of cancer. And a patient that I meet, about half of my patients that I meet nowadays, they've got a treatable but not curable cancer. So even what metaphor do you use on this journey? Part of my mission is how can I help someone living with incurable cancer find joy even in a journey that's going to lead to their death yeah well that's powerful Dr. Deming what now could you explain for the people out there cancer is a cell tell what cancer exactly is yeah so a cancer cell begins with a mutation of a normal cell so a cancer is not an alien. Uh, It's not a bacteria. It's not something that enters our body from elsewhere. It is us. And how did we come from being a one-cell organism that's the first bit of life to evolve to be a human being? We got from there to here 
by mutations. Some mutations make us taller, faster, stronger, and better looking, and other mutations cause cancer. So the key of life, the recipe of life, includes mutations. And as I said, some of those mutations turn out to be favorable and lead us to evolve to be better at surviving and passing our genes into the next generation. Some mutations result in cancer that no longer respects the boundaries of the fellow cells and starts to grow and spread without regard for the other cells. And that's essentially what a cancer is. And although we've made huge progress in treating cancer, I don't think we'll ever find the cure for all cancers, just as I don't think we'll ever find the cure for aging. And if we did find the cure for aging and for cancer, we're going to have to start populating, you know, the moon and Mars a lot sooner. So I'm not pessimistic by saying I don't think we'll solve mortality. I mean, if we were to get rid of this concept of human beings die, the planet couldn't sustain us. It's what it is. And then it's now, you know, people talk about different ways people get, whether the water they drink or the stress they take on, combination of both or genetics. Are those... Talk about a little bit about what you see were probably the biggest cause of that mutation of that cell. Yeah, 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 great question. So what a lot of people don't know is that 42% of cancers in the United States are caused by modifiable risk factors, which means that basically 42% of cancers could be avoided. We could prevent 42% of cancers in the United States if we did what we already know will help prevent cancer. What can you do to help prevent cancer? Number one, don't smoke. If you do smoke, stop smoking. Number two, this triad of obesity, lack of physical activity, and bad calories, that triad causes almost as many cancers in the United States as cigarette smoking. Next would be, you know, use sunscreen. Melanoma, a deadly skin cancer is caused by ultraviolet. Next, get your HPV vaccination. Infectious diseases do lead to about 10% of cancers. And one of those viruses, the human papillomavirus, HPV virus, causes six different types of cancers. The two most common are cervix cancer in women and tonsil cancer in men. And the HPV vaccination, which you get at about ages 11 to 13, can prevent those cancers from happening. And a lot of people take their tonsils out, though. That doesn't prevent okay, tonsil cancer. You just get cancer where your tonsils used to be. Okay. So okay. that's not a preventive. And then also alcohol intake. Excessive alcohol intake increases your risk of cancer. So we've just named probably what affects 90% of the cancers that can be prevented. And that, again, is cigarette smoking, obesity, lack of physical exercise, the wrong types of calories, infectious diseases, sun exposure, alcohol intake. The other thing would be radon. Radon is the second leading cause of lung cancer. And in Iowa in particular, radon is, you know, it's not a pollutant. It's a natural gas that comes up through our basements and can increase the I risk. think Iowa's number one in the United States. Yes. Right? For yes. radon. Yep. Yeah. So those are things that we can do. You know, if I had a pill that I could sell you that would prevent 42% of cancers in the United States, Boy, that would be worth a lot. The things I just mentioned are pretty much free. Common sense. Absolutely. Yeah. It really is. One of the other <clears throat> factors that is only responsible for about 10% is genetic mutations that we inherit from our parents that make us more likely to develop cancer. So normally that's not included in the list of modifiable risk factors, but now with CRISPR and gene editing, you know, someday, yes, someday, right. <laughs> um, you know, inheriting a gene from our parents might be a modifiable risk factor. Yes. But it's I, not. I, I, but most cancers aren't caused by a gene you got from your mom or your dad. 
Yeah, that's good to know. That's good to know. Dr. Deming, we just had a great conversation. I love the history and insight on cancer and just your view of bringing joy and what your purpose is, really. And I think that's fascinating. And so we brought in a second guest to join our show today because there's a lot of connection between our two guests. Yes. Well, we're lucky to have here Dr. Deming. And we have, I would guess, probably one of his top patients, Tim My favorite patient of all time. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I could say personally, pound for pound, he's probably the toughest guy in this room. This guy is, they knock him down, he gets back up off the mat, and he does it over and over again. Unbelievable, successful businessman, very successful family man is probably the most important thing to him. And I just want to welcome Tim Nugent. To, Thank you. To our it's great to be here. The king of joy. The king of joy. Yeah, let's, let's talk about that a little oh, bit. Tim inspires me. And, uh, you know, I... The thing about the practice of medicine is, you know, it works in both directions. The more you give, the more you get. And just like a hug, you know, it's such a a sense of fulfillment to be able to work with people like Tim and to be inspired. And I'll let Tim tell his own story. But, you know, Tim and I knew each other a bit. I think the first time I met Tim, my remembrance of it is you were hosting a ALS fundraising breakfast. And so Tim's always been generous and helping with the causes. And I, that's the first time I remember meeting you in the community. And then we probably ran into each other through various fundraising galas and then weddings, weddings that's right, weddings as well of, of, of mutual friends or children of mutual friends. And then, you know, we got to know each other on a different level. And I'll let Tim tell his story. Dr. Deming evokes great emotion out of me, so I may get a little choked up a little bit here. In April of 2019, I was diagnosed with four-stage pancreatic cancer. And it's a call you don't want on a Saturday morning, at 7 o'clock in the morning. But the gastrologist told me to come down to Mercy. They're going to meet. And that's when I met Dr. Deming on a more personal basis <laughs> and was introduced to probably the finest medical team in America. Dr. Deming was my radiologist, oncologist, and much, much more, as he said in his earlier statements, is that he treats patient and cancer holistically. And I mean spiritually, philosophically, medically with traditional and not-so-traditional medical, uh, such as acupuncture and things of that nature. I also met with Dr. Deming, my chemo-oncologist, Dr. Wiebe, my gastrologist, surgeon, Dr. Lopez, a surgeon by the name of Dr. T, who uh, actually worked with the pancreatic cancer doctors up in a Mayo Clinic, and Dr. Freeze who I didn't understand was on the team initially. She was the uh, infectious disease doctor, but I learned through my journey how important she became in my life. And this was a phenomenal medical team, and the compassion they had, the joy they instilled in me was uh, second to none. They gave me a great deal of faith, and fortunately I was a person of pretty strong faith and was able to, I knew that I wasn't in control, And I knew that my medical team wasn't that much in my control. They were going to do everything they can, but it was truly in God's hands. And Deming and I talked a lot about that, which helped me greatly. Now, Tim, I want to interrupt just for one second. Because I remember we had Christmas together. The club had a Christmas party. And Tim, at that time, we were sitting together. And he said, I just don't feel good. And I think it's going on for about two months, I believe. Mm -hmm. And he always liked to have a... Nice. He had have a cocktail, but that day he wasn't feeling very good, and I knew he wasn't very good. And you left that party, and I think we all were kind of concerned. Did you start out with Dr. Deming? Or, no, how actually. Did you tell act- the journey before you got to Dr. Yeah, Deming. Yeah, actually, is, you're right, Paul. I wasn't feeling good, and my first issue was my gallbladder, which I almost, by the way, I don't know if you ever knew this, I almost set the uh, world record with that gallbladder. It was 10 inches long. There was a lady in London that beat me by a quarter of an inch or something. And, and with well over 100 stones in it, they stopped at 100 stones. And uh, so I had my gallbladder taken out and I thought, okay, well, that makes sense, you know. And, uh, you know, yeah, I think I a glass of wine really set that thing yeah. on fire. And 
So I had that surgery and uh, I then went down to Florida. I still had the same feeling. I still didn't feel good. And I would call the gastrologist at the time. It wasn't Lopez, it was somebody else in his office. And I said, you know, I'm just not feeling good. And she said, well, what are you doing? And I said, well, right after surgery, I drove down to Florida and I'm lifting weights and I'm playing golf. And she said, well, no wonder you don't feel good. You just had me kind of got a major surgery. It may you let your body heal. And she called me back in two or three weeks. And I did. And I said, I'm still not feeling good. She said, all right, let's make an appointment when you get back. And that's when they did. I don't know if they did an MIR at that time, but certainly a CAT scan. And they found the tumors, which was in the, located in the head and the neck, two tumors. Head and the neck of the pancreas. Of yeah, the pancreas. And, and that was deemed inoperable because of the blood vessels and one main blood vessel that goes through there. They can't surgically operate. And that's when I met Dr. Deming and the team and... And, and truly, the journey was, he would see me every day. So Tim was hospitalized because, you know, yeah. he had the, in the, the biopsy and then uh, a well, liver abscess and then a punctured lung. And so there was one point where Tim's in the hospital and he's got a chest tube. He's got three drainage tubes in his liver. He's got a feeding liver. tube and an nasogastric tube and three Chemo. IVs yeah. and a bobblehead hope. On, <laughs> yep. on the windowsill, which I just, I can't solar, think of using. Powered. But there, there, were, there were difficult, challenging days. So Tim's cancer journey, I mean, this wasn't a little bitty skin cancer. This is a stage four, unresectable, aggressive cancer of the pancreas and starts off with lots of just complications including infectious disease and abscesses and punctured lung and so those first few weeks as he's getting started with the chemotherapy so I'm not giving him radiation I'm basically trying to get him to smile once a day as I stop to visit him in the hospital and, and what, uh, what was it that we smiled about what do so, we do every day? So every day, I don't know if it started the first day, but we would share Oli and Lena jokes. So Tim had uh, his requirement, his homework was every day he had to have a joke for me. Now, um, we can't tell those jokes <laughs> right now. Probably, probably some of those we shouldn't have been telling in a Catholic hospital. Exactly. But so that, and then eventually uh, radiation became part of the treatment. So Tim came to my office as an outpatient once a day for five weeks in a row. Well, I was in the hospital. And I had 20 days straight of radiation. Okay. It's, so you were still in the hospital yeah, when you were getting Yeah. Now, Dr. Deming, I think this is a story that I want you to tell Tim. You went to Mayo Clinic, actually, and they told you to pack your bags. That story was a profound story that when you told me that. Pretty profound to me, too. And would you tell that? And then you had to talk, yeah, to, your real quickly, about talking to your family and then Dr. Deming's. So when I first met Dr. Deming and Weeby and so forth, the team, I asked if they would be offended if I went and got a second opinion. I said, oh, all means, go to Mayo Clinic. We're all connected with our computers and information, and we can share the scans and all that. We welcome you to go to your second opinion. And I did do that. And I was talking to supposedly one of the leading pancreatic cancer doctors in the world, certainly in the country, and where I left a team of tremendously compassionate people, I found just the opposite. So my wife and I, Diane, and I were sitting in a room. There were two nurses across from us standing, and this doctor walks in, and he sat down, and he said, Tim, I've looked at your scans. I've looked at your blood work. I've looked at your MRI. He says, go home. There's not a thing we can do for you, and I hope you have some quality of life left. I said, well, how much time do you think I got left? He says, oh, it's shy three months, probably two, maybe less. Get your stuff in order. And he got up and walked out. I looked at the nurses, and had I not had the diagnosis, I think I'm pretty mentally tough and strong, but that, they would have had to scrape me off the floor if that was my first diagnosis. That's how cold. And So I went back, and Dr. T, who worked with this particular doctor, said something very profound to me as I told her the story. And she says, Tim, first of all, there are miracles that happen every day at Mercy Hospital. I would never say such a thing to you. Secondly, Tim, 
there's a reason I'm at Mercy and not at Mayo Clinic. And that said everything. And I said, why did I even bother? I got the best team here possible. And I, to this day, believe it. And I want you to know, Dr. Demian, I thank God every day for you and the team. No. Thank you, Tim. It's an honor to be on your team and, you know, and to get to know your family. And I remember the first pancreatic walk that was uh, when after you'd been diagnosed and, oh, my God, you hadn't been out of the hospital very long and you were not feeling great, but you had Team Timmy. And I think at that point it was like, okay, well, Mayo said we got two months and maybe this is our last chance to get together as a family. And so I remember that first uh, outing with your whole extended family coming together out at Raccoon Park for the Pancreatic Cancer Awareness Walk. And then uh, remember uh, the next year how much (laughs) more... Uh, spring you had in your step as we celebrated miracle truly yeah yeah with tremendous health care yeah you know you gave him the nickname yeah that, what a great and how that became because yeah the king of joy the king <laughs> and, of joy and on your own podcast I, I was happened to be on that and it was a wonderful i think it broke record numbers of people on the broadcast and, uh, well, if every one of his family know. member just watched it once, we would. <laughs> Good old Irish Catholic. Yeah. But tell him how did he become to get that nickname? So, and you know, we... What we, is it, the patient of joy? What do you call king, it? King. The king of, king of joy. The king of joy. The king of joy. So about the same time that Tim was diagnosed, a book came out by the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu called The Book of Joy. And that book is a wonderful book I'd recommend to everyone. It's maybe just right after Above and Beyond Cancer as <laughs> one of my favorite. No, it's a, it's a tremendous book, The Book of Joy by uh, Desmond Tutu and uh, the Dalai Lama. And it talks about the obstacles to joy, but then the eight pillars of joy. And four are pillars of the mind and four are pillars of the heart. And included in those pillars are perspective and humor and humility and gratitude and generosity and compassion. But but one of those is humor. And so, you know, it was clear, even when Tim wasn't feeling good, you know, he's a jokester and likes to tell stories and so that became clear so we just you know it was important as he was going through those difficult times i mean you can't just spend your whole time just talking about the tumor and how miserable and how much drainage is coming out of this tube and that tube and so we would clear that he had a lot of jokes in him so we just it was like one a day let's just do this one a day can I tell, can I tell you can tell a joke can I yeah. tell the one story about the Saturday night <laughs> it's yeah, yes you may certainly tell that story but, 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 boy you hit a couple nerves there so yeah. Tim calls me one Saturday night yeah and Tim says you know doctor my uh, testicles are so big I can't walk and I said I'm not even wearing underwear I said I don't even wear anything and he said well first of all Tim get some briefs <laughs> So, thank you. Because uh, I don't want you chaffing. And I said, well, I will pass that, believe me. And, and I said, I mean, it's really uncomfortable. And he says, as I recall, you got an appointment with me Monday. This was a Saturday night. And I said, yes, I do. And he says, well, I'm pretty sure you're carrying water. That's uh, 99% confident that's what it is. I'll give you an, an, some medication and we'll get that taken care of. Uh, don't worry about it. I'll see you Monday. And I said, okay. Great. And he says, but I got to tell you something, Tim. He says, I will never forget the Saturday night. And I'm going, what, what, what are you talking about? And he says, well, it's Saturday night that Tim Nugent called me to tell me how big his balls were. <laughs> I still, I think of that, I think of that night. And Tim, I st- are you I, bragging or complaining yeah, right now? That's exactly right. You had to tell someone. Oh, my goodness. Uh, so that, those were the kind of things uh, daily that Dr. Demi would bring to my room and total joy, jokes and things like that. So how did you transfer that joy to your family? This isn't just a journey for you. This is a journey for your whole family. How did you transfer that? Uh, We're a pretty tight family. And uh, I think it started with my faith that I gave it up to God. I said, you know, none of us are in control here, including me. And I said, you know, I'm kind of a control freak. And I said, I'm telling you, we're not in control here. And whatever it is, we got to be accepted. And I was very thankful and in turn ended up being joyful that I had two months 
that I could plan, say goodbye, get things in order. I really did. I cherished that. I mean, I really cherished. In fact, when I came back from driving back from Mayo Clinic, my business brain just took over and I said, Diane, I'm going to sell the motorcycle. I'm going to do this, 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 and this. We're going to get our burial. All this stuff I'm going to put in order because I don't want you to have to deal with this after I'm gone. So it was that kind of discussion and it elicited joy by just going through that process. I mean, it's hard to understand that until you do it, but the strong faith is the initial, followed by the ability to have joy in saying, you know, it is a celebration. And I said, I said earlier um, that if God gave me 10 lives, 10 more lives, he couldn't replace the one I had. How more joyful can I be than that? You know, and I know that eventually it's got to come to an end. So if this is it, this is it. And just don't let me linger too long to have my family see me. Yeah, I would say that, you know, we, we talked about the jokes, but truly the joy and the king of joy isn't about the jokes. It's about this deep-seated appreciation for life. And it's about generosity. And it's about gratitude. And it's about compassion with your family. Those are the pillars of joy. I mean, humor is one of the pillars, but the joy we're talking about is that even in the midst of thinking he was had a possibility of dying within a few months, of finding the ability to have uh, gratitude um, for his family. We also talked about, you know, when you talk to individuals, let's say uh, during that time where it was pretty uncertain how many months how do you open yourself up and talk to people so i shared with him some words of wisdom that um i have uh, been have read from wise folks about conversations you have how do you have a conversation that might be the last conversation and there's four things that you can say and those four things are number one please forgive me for any stupid thing i might have done in our lives together. Second, I forgive you for anything you've ever done. Number three, thank you for being in my life. And number four, I love you. And those four things can help when you're, uh, the last thing you need to do is have a conversation where you spend an hour telling everybody about every tube and every surgery and every chemo drug and every radiation treatment. You know, you cut through all of that and what does it mean to be in the presence of another human being? And it's to get down to those, forgive me, I forgive you, thank you, and I love you. That's yeah. powerful. That's powerful. powerful. You know, yeah, but there's... In addition to Dr. Hindemian and, and that book, uh, he went through the pillars with me and all that, and, and boy, did that resonate. So I'd forgotten a little bit about that. I'm glad you brought that up and reminded me. But, you know, we'd find humor in the dumbest things, like my ther you know. So it's kind of a zig and zag, you know, is that you're laying there and you're down to 110 pounds or whatever, and, and you don't have any strength, and the physical therapist says, get your butt out of bed. We're going to go for a walk. And I'm going, really? And, and I got 20 tubes hanging out of me. I got to have an army of people. So it was like a cucaracha band going down the hallway. I'm not kidding you. And you know, the first uh, couple of days in the hospital and so forth, and I'm getting up and walking and, you know, it just they, every day new tubes came in. So in the earlier days, I probably only had five tubes or something, but we still needed to carry stuff around and you know, I was very modest, you know, and those, those robes are, I still, you know, Paul, we're both <laughs> entrepreneurs. We should, we should be able to invent a decent gown that can come off and on for surgery. And that's better than these things. And anyway, this thing is open in the back. And so I was very modest going down the hall and everything. By the fifth day, I remember the nurse saying, hey, I see your ass. And I said, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> not much there, is it? Not much there. I'm the king of joy. I'm simply free. I didn't care. I mean, it's just amazing how I went downhill in that regard. Is that you know I was so modest and everything. By the third, fourth, fifth day, you know, it didn't uh, matter. But you know, one thing that I love what both of you guys did is you guys teamed up, and you made a film of the family talking how it affected the whole family. And you have that on a website? That yeah, somebody so the to go uh, Above and Beyond Cancer YouTube channel. Okay. You can find it. Um, and uh, just, uh, yeah, Tim Nugent and uh, Above and Beyond Cancer YouTube channel. 
but you, you, nobody goes through a cancer journey by themselves, and the whole family is affected, uh, especially when it's a stage four pancreas cancer with the prognosis that Tim was given. Uh, there is you know, anticipatory grief that begins at the beginning. I mean, number one, it's a two by four up the side of the head that uh, reminds you of two things you already know but try to forget every day, that you're going to die someday, and then it may be sooner than you think. And so what do you do? You get your team together and you proceed up the mountain with hope and optimism, but you also start kind of this anticipatory grief of, gosh, maybe I won't see my next grandchild that is going to be delivered in five months. Maybe I won't have my next anniversary. Maybe we won't get to have that family reunion in Wisconsin. And, and you start thinking of all the things that you're missing. And that's a normal thing, but you, you kind of bring, come back to here today that if you spend all your time regretting what happened yesterday and worrying about what's going to happen tomorrow, you lose your only moment for joy, which is here and now. And so as in addition to trying to comfort individuals through this, this anticipatory grief, you also try to bring them into, you know, don't be so set on grieving that you're missing the opportunity to have this encounter right now that we're having. I'm glad you brought that point up, Dr. Deming, because in that period, off and on, I talked to Tim. Literally, he got up in the morning, I think you painted your house. He started doing something <laughs> like, holy cow, he's not laying on the couch. He got up, and I said, what do you do? He says, I'm not dying. I'm going to get up every day. I'm going to fight till the end. And you got up, not only that, to this day, he'll go up to Iowa State University and spend eight, ten hours and then come down here on a Zoom call. And I'm like, what an amazing guy. And it's, you know, Resilience. I, think, I think, get back, I think that's a lot of his, why he's alive today. Well, Would he, you agree, Dr. Well, Dewey? yeah, I, I mean, we I have mean, two I, ways of approaching this. We can just go to bed and pull the covers up over our head and just wait to die. Or we can ring every ounce of joy out of every day, regardless of how many days we have. So if you enjoy painting your house, why the hell not well, paint I, your I house? Really enjoy it. It, was <laughs> of, it was one of those commitments oh, I made. Oh, it was, okay. <laughs> See, it was fulfilling a commitment. Well, that's, yeah. that brings joy to one's but life, did, to fulfill you know, a commitment. And you'd say, you know, I'd climb up the ladder, and I was so sick, and I was so weak, and I'd climb the ladder, you know, and paint, and, and be out there eight, nine hours, and dance says, Tim. You're going to kill yourself. The cancer's not going to kill you. You're killing yourself. You know, but, That's but, what I was But thinking. it was good therapy. And, yeah. But I, I got one other story that I'm going to remind you of. Uh, so on the same floor, that first week or two, Barnum, Dan and Denise Barnum, Dan was the vice president, executive vice president of Mercy Hospital. His wife had uh, been diagnosed with um, breast cancer, and Dr. Deming was her doctor. And... It just so happens that my son is married to their daughter. So with my cucaracha band, holding all my, you know, the thing that was taking water off my lung and all this, all this, and that thing, that thing was as big as a humidifier. I still can't get over the size of that thing, that box that drained me on my lung. But uh, so it took, a, it took one person just to carry that. So uh, we would meet, we're on the same floor, we'd meet at the T where the hall would go north and south and the, the east and west. So we'd meet at the hall and Dan would come over and Diane would always have a bottle of wine. So Dan would say, hey, do you got some wine? <laughs> and so they, they would be toasting Purely in my for room. for communion purposes. Right, right, right. Yes. communion purposes. So, but so, I yeah, mean, that, so that was, uh, and, and by the way, she is, um, I'm going to say without cancer, I don't know what the proper terminology is today. She's cured for all practical purposes. And doing well. Yeah. So Tim, yeah, both both Tim and Denise were in the hospital, and so um, your your daughter's married to their son, or the other way around. My son's your married son to their daughter. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Glad you clarified. And so that. both of them, and just uh, you know, basically seven doors down from each other on the same cancer floor, and. I mean, and talk about then the double, yeah, the uh, double whammy, grief, and just worry of the families having two of the 
members of the family in the hospital with uh, cancer at so the same that time. that was your son's mother-in-law. Yeah. Wow. I do kind of remember that back then. And now let's bring this together because now you've been to talk about how the last your last uh, exam last what was it March that uh, uh, this is November I'm having one in December I would say it was around August maybe I don't know I can't remember July yeah so the tests have turned out fine everything's looking good and we're just kind of um, some of the, the plumbing is a little narrowed because of some scar tissue from chemo and radiation but uh, Tim has not had any anti-cancer treatment for the end of 19 2019 and we're 2022 oh wow yeah oh wow cancer. yeah God bless you. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Yeah. No, God is a, a power of prayer is a, an amazing thing. And it is, it's all the things that Dr. Demney said, it's, he, he articulated so well, all those pillars of joy and it's, you don't face it alone. I mean, I can't even imagine facing, I couldn't, I wouldn't be here. I, I can guarantee you that. And you know, I, I, want, I neglected to mention someone else that was very important in my life and still is, and that's uh, Mercy has a navigator. And the first thing I thought, let's see, Dr. Deming is a deep sea diver. I've got a navigator. We're going on a boat ride. <laughs> <laughs> Who's the cruise director? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Dina runs all the interference and she coordinates Dr. Deming with my chemo oncologist, Weeby, and with the other medical team members. And she is phenomenal. And she kind of, she was kind of the glue that kept all of it together, you know, and, uh, and communications still is to this day. And that's what I'm so grateful for is that the team that took me not only through the journey, they're still in, here serving me today. So it's not a, you don't end the process, you know, you still, I still see Weeby and Deming and Dina and Lopez and these people and they're still waiting on me. They're Part still serving family. me becomes a part of the family. It's, yeah, it really, really does. That's so. amazing. That's amazing. I'll tell you, Monty, what a, what a great day. That, this has been a fun conversation. I've been listening so intently of the learnings, you know, the, the resilience that you had. And from your conversation at Mayo to Back to Mercy and realizing you have to have joy. And I love your positioning of you're not just here to, to improve the cells. You're here to improve the whole body. Yeah. It's, a, it's a great day to be alive. Yes, yes it is. Yeah. Every day is. Yes, it is. Yeah. It is. And, but his approach, and, and I don't know if you mentioned it, uh, it, it, his holistic approach to treatment is the cure. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not the radiation. Right. It's mm -hmm. only a... Actually, I think it's a small part of it. He may disagree. No, I totally agree. There is yeah. no doubt that hugs sometimes provide more benefit than a dose yeah. of radiation. And Tim um, comes around. Tim served on the uh, capital campaign committee that raised the funds for the expansion of our cancer center. And because of Tim's hard work and generosity, we just opened up a new wing of our outpatient cancer center where we have created an integrative medicine program for cancer patients. So in addition to doing, you know, chemotherapy, radiation therapy, and surgery, we now have brought into the cancer center massage therapy, chiropractic care, acupuncture, genetic counseling, nutritional counseling, uh, sexual health counseling, mindfulness-based uh, stress reduction, um, I need music some of that therapy, sex counseling, by the way. Therapy, <laughs> uh, pet therapy, uh, support groups, all of those we've brought into the cancer center. Um, those services aren't intended to kill cancer cells. They're intended to help improve the quality of life and ultimately joy. Joy. And, and they call and, it the Dr. Fleming. Dr. Deming, Deming Cancer sorry, Center. Dr. Deming Cancer that's, Center. That's where I was going with my story. <laughs> yeah, okay. But uh, exactly. Uh, okay. So it's the Dr. Deming Cancer Center. Brought to you by Tim Nugent. No, it's not. No, no, no. I, I was a minor player in this. Um, but And I'll tell you what, it's state of the art. It is, it's a wall factor. You go up there, 
It is, and I'll tell you, he's like proud as a peacock. He shines when he takes you through it. And it is so bright and beautiful. And I never realized this, and I've been on the Mercy Foundation board for a number of years. I never realized that they've got the best view of the Capitol <laughs> in the city of Des Moines. I mean, the best. That office sitting where the gals are working, right, administrative right. gals, that is phenomenal. So as a radiation oncologist, I've lived my life in the basement. Right. So typically yes. you put the large radiation emitting machines in the basement so there's nobody under you to that you're going to zap when there's nobody around you, you got the earthen wall. So now I am on the top floor of this <laughs> building <laughs> it is with so windows all the way around. Oh, it's it's uh, so I, bright and freshing. I can hardly see because I, I turned into a mole living 40 years <laughs> yeah, underground right. no, that's, in I, yes, radiation yes, oncology. Right. So I didn't know I didn't know the reason for that. But yeah. Yeah. Yes, it's for shielding purposes. Yeah, so sense. you have all of the high-energy yeah. radiation machines. Or, but you, yeah. if you get a chance, if you're down the area, stop in there and just walk around. It's fantastic. And I drove by Mercy when we left our meeting the other day, and I drove and I looked up. There's Doctor Dr. Deming's name. Yeah. yeah, and we had to get our well club. deserving. We'll get our club together. We need to go through that. Yeah, it would be, be wonderful. We talk about that. Yeah. But anyway, we do appreciate your guys' time today coming out here. What it's a pleasure! Thank this you. Is, I think it's beyond what we expected. A absolutely, Paul. What, what were a couple of takeaways that you've gained from today that you want to make sure our listeners and our audience hears? As Doctor Deming was saying, I think being present is really something that we need to look at, and we need to think about joy. In the way he laid it out there in building this wing of joy. And I think it, I don't know that there's any other place in the United States that has a wing quite like this. So I'm definitely going to be, it's on my bucket list to visit. But being present, joy, you know, and forgive. I think that's important. I, I love that. A couple of things that I wrote down was the deep-seated appreciation for life every single day. And finding the things that bring you joy every day. And you said it, stop regretting and stop worrying and be there every day. We talk about, we do need to work towards something in the future, but we can't worry about it. We can only control and influence today. And so I really appreciate the both of you sharing that. And Dr. Deming, there's one question we always ask our audience is, what do you want to be known for? And I think you've kind of shared that through our entire conversation, but I'd love to hear you put that in your words. Well, thanks. Yeah, I think it's to be known as a person who cares about other people, who serves others, not just in words, but in deeds, and who places the human experience above material objects. That's great. And you want to talk about your book and... Uh you're on YouTube, Beyond and Yeah, well, uh, thank you. Above yeah. And Beyond. You so um, the book Above and Beyond Cancer is really about the philosophical journey that uh, patients and families go through when they're presented with cancer. And the book's available on Amazon.com, Above and Beyond Cancer. And then we also, through our cancer center and uh, the cancer survivorship program above and beyond cancer, do a weekly video podcast, and that's available at the Above and Beyond Cancer YouTube channel or at the Mercy One Cancer Center website. Both of those are places where you can see those video podcasts, including my conversation with Tim and his family. That's up, Van. You want to watch that for sure. On this podcast, we will find a link so that you, if you listen to this podcast, you can link in to Dr. Deming's uh, Above and Beyond Cancer. So great awesome. job. Thanks, guys. Appreciate Thank you it. both. Thank you. Thank you for listening to What's Your Ceiling? We hope this episode has helped you transform the way you think, understand your awareness, has given you new ideas, and has provided you a new perspective on how to push through your ceiling. Please take in a second to give us a thumbs up. Each review helps us impact more people just like you making a difference in this world. See you next week on What's Your Ceiling?